through 50 is actually what we're going to be studying today. It's where we left off. But I want to start with a question. What are the things that you take really serious in your life? If I were to ask you that, if we were sitting across the table from one another, and I started with that question, what is it that you take serious? What would you say? You know, you may rattle off some answers pretty quickly. You may be tempted to say, well, I take my faith seriously. I take my family seriously. I take my career serious. You know, what, what would be those things that you would say versus what conclusions would we come to if we got to observe your life? Isn't that a terrifying thing if people just got to observe every moment of your life and, and draw conclusions about you based on that observation? If we were observing you, what would be serious? What would we determine you take serious, right? Where would you be spending that energy and that time? What are all your thoughts about? If we were to look at your life for a season of time, what conclusions would we draw and how would that differ from your answer? I want us to think about some of these things, you know, because you can, you can really tell by looking at somebody's life how serious they take something. You know, I, I remember here um, years ago, Amanda was running a half marathon, and you could tell just by observing the people who showed up to run that race how serious they took running or what they took serious about running. Some people were just showing up there, and this is their effort just to stay in shape or to get back in shape. They needed a goal, and so they were there to to accomplish a half marathon. And then there were people, you could tell it was about something different to them, like they were there to compete, right? You could tell that's what they took serious. They wanted to be good at this and they wanted to be better than other people at this. They were there to run faster than those around them. And then there were the Kenyans. Like, right, have you been to one of these half marathons and the Kenyans show up and it's like, like, in oh, every single one of us, we're like, oh, well, evidently we don't take running serious at all. Because they take the seriousness of running to a whole nother level. It's, it's, it's amazing to watch them run in that race. It's just incredible. But it's like, wow, now that's what it means to take running serious. It's a way of life for them. But, you know, it's the same thing. You walk into a gym. You observe people in the gym. What, what do they take serious? Well, some people are serious about burning fat. You know, they get on the stair machine and they stay there for a long time. Other people are serious about gaining muscle, so they're lifting weights the whole time. Other people are there because they take how they look very serious, right? And so they are there to do the reps and then stare, and then do the reps again and then stare, and then, you know, go snort a line of, a line of creatine, come back and look in the mirror some more. And they want you to look at them too, right? So they're taking videos, they're putting on social media because that's their gift to the world, we can all stare at them. That's what they take serious. That's just, you can tell by observing somebody what's important to them. You know, go to church league softball, and you can see people are there for a lot of different reasons, and the things that they take serious vary, right? You got the two guys uh, that, that put a team together, right? They're the only two guys who go to that church on the entire team, and they have recruited 10 other guys, all with the nickname Tank. And... And, and they just want to beat the other churches to smithereens, right? They take winning so, so serious. I once, this is not a lie, I once saw a grown man cry after losing a church league softball game. <laughs> that is no lie. I witnessed that with my own two eyes. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, because you can tell just by observing somebody what they take serious. You observe our team. And you know we take, like, goofing off serious, right? <laughs> We're just out there 
trying to breathe if we got to run around the bases. And I was literally issued a warning last year for goofing off in a church league softball game. It was the first time it ever happened. A ball was, I was in the outfield. It got, clearly was going over my head. It was going to go over the fence. So I took my glove off and I threw it up in the air to try to hit the ball before it went over the fence. Evidently, you can't do that. <laughs> so the umpire comes out and says, you do it again, we're going to award the, team, the other team a, a run. And I was like, well, you better be ready. <laughs> do not underestimate my immaturity. You challenge me, I will throw this glove. But I mean, what you take serious, it defines you, doesn't it? It determines how you behave. It determines what matters to you. It determines, you know, what you take serious... It determines how you spend your time. It determines how you spend your energy, your money. It, it even determines your emotions. What you take serious determines how you display emotions in your life. So what you take serious will determine what makes you happy. What you take serious will determine what makes you sad, what disappoints you. So I bring all of this up to say, like, we have this really special moment in this passage that we're studying today to see what Jesus really took serious. It explains a lot about who Jesus is. It explains a lot about how and why he showed the emotions that he did in his life on this earth and in the ministry. It, it, it tells us a lot about who he is. And so if we want to be Christians, if we're here to really learn more about Jesus and model our life about him, this passage explains a lot about what should be defining you, about what should be important to you. It's such a, it's such a clear life application type teaching that like everybody should be reading this passage and, and immediately be taking it to heart and thinking about, you know, how this should matter right now in their life. And so Jesus, the issue he's taking serious here is sin. He took sin more serious than anyone around him. And at times, you see this emotion coming out of Jesus because of how serious he took sin. And so we want to we think about this today. Even, even the, when he, so when he teaches about sin, we got all this really powerful imagery that we're meant to think about and, and, and like envision, like, you know, see the picture in our minds. And we see these harsh realities that he uses to really just drive home this point that you don't take sin, sin as serious as you should. You don't take the consequences of sin as serious as you should. He never downplayed it. I mean, when, when you study this passage, like if you don't feel like this passage is like being hit with an arrow between the eyes, you're, you're not even trying. You're not even trying to apply this passage. This is an opportunity for us to change how we think about sin. That's the, that's the purpose of this. That's the goal. When we read a teaching like this, Jesus took this that serious? I don't take that as serious as Jesus does. Maybe I should start taking it more serious. I hope that is the, that's the, the link of, of thoughts that enter your mind as we contemplate this today because all of us need to change. We need to change the way we think about sin. So Jesus right in this moment is alone with his 12 disciples. We remember he's traveling, and it's an intimate time of teaching. There's no crowds around. There's no noise. It's just the rabbi and his disciples, and he's sitting them down, and he's talking to them, and he's investing them in, in them and, and to people that he considers so dear to him. This 
is how serious you should be taking sin. Let's jump into it in verse 42. Listen to how serious this is. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now remember in the previous pa passage, let's remember the context. John, the disciple John, he just brought up this situation to Jesus. He said, hey, the other day we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And he wasn't one of us. So we, we stopped him from doing that because we didn't feel as though it was right. He's not in the cool kid club. He's not one of the inner circle. He should, we're the only ones that get to do great things as your followers, not other people. So we put a stop to it. Remember, that's the context. Now remember, remember Jesus, you know, he has teaching that, that rebukes that. Like, don't stop that guy, right? Don't stop that guy. He's, he may be younger in his faith. He may be a new believer or whatever. And he's trying to do what's good. He's clearly, he's on our side. Well, don't, don't, don't hinder that dude. And so Jesus takes it a step further, right? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. Don't hinder the growth of one of these newer believers. You think of how that made that guy feel whenever John smacked him on the hand. Told him, hey, don't do that. You're not one of us. You don't get to do that stuff. You know, what, what did that guy, how did that guy feel? Like, oh, wow, the disciples are kind of jerks, right? I, I can follow Jesus too, can't I? I was just trying to do something good. I was trying to do something great. I was, I was making much of the name of Christ, and, and, and I got smacked on the hand for it by these guys. Like, it makes you, makes you wonder, where did that guy go in life after that moment? Did he... Did he just totally reject the following uh, or the teachings of Jesus after that moment? And, and think about that today. How many stories could you and I swap about people who tried to give Christianity a try? They tried to give church a go. And someone in that church who thought they were further along, more mature, smacked them on the hand, you know, abused them in some way, whether it be you know, uh, small or big, and, and, it, and whatever the interaction was between a, a supposed mature believer and this new person, it ended in that new person resenting the church and never coming back again. How many stories? I, I've lost count. I could tell story after story, and often it's the case that I meet people who don't go to church, and when they learn that I'm a pastor and we're having a conversation, they'll even bring it up. Yeah, you know, People are rude in church, and so I just don't like going. And, and so it's, it's just happened time and time again. How many people hate just the Christian faith in general because of an interaction with one of us? You know, how much abuse has taken part in the church from someone who's been in church a long time, someone who hasn't, or someone who's younger in their faith or just younger altogether, and they've been abused whether it be emotionally, physically, or even sexually. Like, I, again, I've lost count. I mean, after this many years of ministry, I just lost count. I could tell you story after story after story after story. I mean, it just, it, it makes me angry thinking about all these stories. I mean, that, that kind of, of abuse, it takes place in every institution, right? In every institution. But it also takes place in church, and we shouldn't act like it doesn't. We don't want to ignore that. We want to call it out when it, when it happens. And it doesn't do any good for us to sweep that stuff under the rug, which is a lot of times what we tend to do, which actually makes the abuse even worse. But Jesus uses this extreme 
and this terrifying imagery so that you and I will take this way more serious than what we actually take it. And you can tell how serious he took it, right? A great millstone around your neck thrown into the sea. If you look at the translation of that verse and get, get into the Greek, it actually says the millstone of a donkey. So there's millstones come in a lot of different sizes, right? Some millstones you can maybe pick up and move with, with you or with yourself or with a few guys. And then there's the millstone of a donkey that you can't move unless you have an animal to help you move that. That's how big this millstone is. And so he's, he's talking about, like, you'd be better off to have one of the bigger millstones. Even the smaller millstone would drown you. But you'd be better off than one of the bigger millstones that no one can move. Tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than cause one of the, a newer believer to, to stumble. So the Romans actually did execute people like this. There was a man's name uh, that I found, a zealot leader named Judas the Galilean. He tried to um, raise up an army and fight against Rome around this time. And they literally took a millstone. Now, it wouldn't have been the millstone of a donkey because they wouldn't have been able to get that into a boat and things like that. But it was a smaller millstone tied it around his neck, chucked it in the ocean, and that's how they executed him. So this was a, this was a known story at this point in time. This, this verse here, this, this teaching that Jesus is using, this imagery, it would have been fresh in everyone's minds because everybody would have known about that guy, how he died, how he was executed. And I think you and I are meant to really just, if we want to take sin serious and, and, and take causing others to sin serious, I think we're, we're meant to really imagine the horror of being killed this way. Can you imagine the horror of having a great millstone with a rope connected to it, and that's connected to your neck? Wherever your neck goes, that's where you're going. And you're not going to stop that millstone from going anywhere with your neck. It's the millstone of a donkey. You can't stop it at all. And you're, just imagine rushing, just the force and the speed at which you would be traveling deeper into the sea if that was tied around your neck. The helpless feeling that you would feel if you were sinking that fast with no air, no chance of escape, and going into the darkness of the water. Just imagine the thought and the terror that you would be living through in that moment, like what that man experienced in his last moments in life. It's just, it's awful. But you would rather experience that than cause someone newer in their faith to sin. You would rather experience that terror than experience making someone sin, wouldn't you? If you, if, you, if you wouldn't, you don't take sin serious enough, do you? Is that how you think about sin? Is that how you think about your relationships with the people around you and how you interact with them and how you treat them and what your life actions and words promote when you're around them? Because sometimes we, we encourage people to sin in so many ways just by the way we talk and the way we live and what we say. But if you don't take sin that serious, Jesus is calling you right now through his word by the spirit to take it more serious. He's challenging you to take it a step further than what you currently do because you've underestimated the seriousness of sin. And so typically, right, when we cause someone else to sin, in our lives, and we all have in here, right? We all have, we all do, and we all will. But when we do that, it's usually our sin 
that causes that sin in the life of someone else. There's a, there's a quote by uh, a guy named Paul Tripp, and he says, sinners tend to behave sinfully whenever they're sinned against. And I, I love that quote. It's always stuck with me because I think it's just so true. Like, whenever you're sinned against, right, that causes you to behave sinfully. The, the inclination to sin after you've been sinned against is great. And so it's our sin in our life that we really need to watch out for if we're going to take sin serious in someone else's life. If we really care about whether or not we cause someone else to sin, especially a younger believer, then we better take our own sin serious. We better go to an extreme to put that sin to death and pursue righteousness. That's what Jesus is teaching next. Look, listen to how serious he takes cutting sin out of your life. Let's read 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So let's break that down. He's talking about the serious of sin. And you need to be so serious about sin. Like if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. You know, in the third century, there was a man named Origen of Alexandria. He's a famous Christian theologian from the third century, and he has one of the coolest names ever, like Origen. It's just weird, but he, he who's famous for writing a lot of things and saying a lot of things, he said a lot of good things. He got a lot of stuff right, but clearly he got one thing very, very wrong. When he read this verse, he was going through a time in his life when she was struggling with lust, and he was just so frustrated. He just felt like he circled back to lust, like he could, he could have seasons of time in which he had success with it, but eventually he would just end up back at lust and he would feel guilty and he, I got to do something about this. And he read this verse and he decided to take this as literal as he possibly could. And so he castrated himself. He castrated himself after reading this verse. I mean, he lost his marbles in more than one way after reading this verse. <laughs> you know, clearly Jesus is not being literal right here, right? We shouldn't have to say that, but you know what? They wanted, Origen was a really popular guy, and so, uh, <laughs> sorry, another joke came to my mind, I just stopped it, I just, I just stopped it. There, there was a church council, the Council of Nicaea, and they were worried that other Christians were going to follow after this guy's teaching. And so they literally came out and condemned the act. Uh, they, they said, no, Jesus was not speaking literally. Like, if, if this was a literal teaching, we would all have, like, no hands and eyes or feet anymore, right? They, it, it would all be chopped off and, and gouged out. And so, yeah, <laughs> you, you shouldn't have to say things like that, but... Uh, I mean, if we got to have a sticker on my lawnmower that says, don't put your hand in here, then we, I guess we need to say out loud, Jesus does not literally want us to chop off our hand and our, and our feet to stop sinning. 
uh, he's speaking symbolically here. There's even, there's literally Old Testament law against self-mutilation. And so this is not even allowed by the law. Jesus is speaking symbolically here. So let's think rationally through what that symbolism means for you and I. I mean, do you want conviction in your life? Do you actually want to change? Think about how this would change how you live your life right now. Is, you know, is ask yourself, if you, had to, if you had to cut off that hand or that foot or gouge out that eye right now, what would it look like in your life right now? Are you spending time somewhere that maybe isn't even inherently evil or anything like that, but it's, it's, it's ending up in more sin? Or it's ending up in a situation in which you're causing someone else to sin. Then stop spending time there. Go to an extreme. You know, when you, when you get on social media and, and look through Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is that, that is your social media of choice, does it turn you into a stressed out lunatic that's hard to be around? Does it turn you into a gossip? Does it make you look at people different or maybe like hold a grudge against people that you don't even really know that well? Stop getting on social media. Get rid of it. It's not worth it. It's not worth the sin that it's creating in your life. Go to an extreme, right? Are are you losing sleep because you're playing video games all night, right? You're accomplishing something in a fantasy world that's not actually accomplishing, accomplishing anything whatsoever, right? And it's actually hindering you accomplishing actual things in your real life. Stop playing video games, right? Go to an extreme. Take it out of your life. There's nothing inherently wrong with, a, with playing a video game. But if it's causing you to sin in a certain way, get it out of your life. Is there a flirtatious relationship in your life in, in any way, shape, or form that started out as just an innocent friendship, but now you're, look, you're seeking out time to flirt or talk to that person or message or whatever it may be, end it. If it's not your spouse, end it. What extreme do you need to go to to cut the sin out of your life that needs cut out of your life? You know, cutting the sin, you think cutting a hand off or a foot off would be extremely painful, right? We're not, we're meant to catch that. That's part of the illustration here. It's oftentimes that we don't cut out these moments in our life that end in sin because it's just too radical, it's too inconvenient. It's too extreme. It's too painful sometimes. But if you take sin serious, it'll be worth it. It makes total sense when you take sin serious in your life. I mean, ending that friendship might be painful, but if it saves your marriage, end the friendship. Who cares about the friendship? Protect your marriage. You know, paying for counseling is costly. I'm going to have less money in my bank account. Who Who cares about your bank account? Fix the problem. You know, be radical about it. Committing to an AA meeting or whatever it may be, that's, in, that's going to re- readjust my whole schedule. That's inconvenient. I'm going to have to do this every week. Well, then do it. If it stops the sin of drunkenness in your life, it's worth it. Do whatever you need to do. Go to an extreme. If you've never gone to an extreme to cut sin out of your life, there's something you don't understand about sin. You don't understand the danger. You have totally underestimated the danger that sin brings in your life you know I think it's human nature to avoid that sort of pain though right any sort of pain it's human nature to avoid that but I mean if something is so inconvenient or if something you know like getting rid of your phone or whatever like just chuck the phone in the the river we've lived without phones for centuries right (laughs) forever we don't need that like if if, if you got to get rid of it get rid of it whatever you'll figure it out but those are painful experiences and so we don't do that 
because it's so, it's so unnecessary, we think, to go through pain, self-inflicted inconvenience. But Jesus is teaching us that it's necessary. It's necessary at times to end sin, to put sin to death in your life and to pursue holiness. And every single one of us should have a moment like that in our lives. Every single, every single one of us, if we're living consistent biblical Christianity, you should be able to think back to a moment in your life. If you've been a believer for any season of time, hardly whatsoever, you should be able to think back to that moment in which you had to do something significant and inconvenient because it, it was the difference between sinning and not sinning. And if you can't think of that moment, you better start looking for one if you're going to take this life as a Christian serious. Because it's part of how we're called to live. And it's way better than hell. Right? That, that self-inflicted pain of cutting out sin in your life, it's way better than hell. We don't like to talk about hell. Right? Christian, Christianity, some, some denominations have like erased it from their vocabulary. It's ridiculous to erase that from your vocabulary. Any pastor or church or denomination who doesn't take hell serious, I, they've lost all credibility with me whatsoever because any honest reading of the Bible makes it abundantly clear that hell is a true reality in Scripture. And it's something that we should take very, very serious. And to ever say that you're a Christian and you don't believe in hell or you downplay hell, that is the most inconsistent thing you could possibly do. Most of what we know about hell, most of our doctrine of hell that we have in Christianity comes from the lips of the Christ. It comes from Jesus. Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus. He brought it up over and over and over again. He would talk about sin. He would talk about hell. And so most of what we know and believe about hell comes from Jesus. So to be a Christian that doesn't take hell serious, it's so, it's, it's absurd. It's just absurd. It doesn't make any sense. The mental gymnastics you would have to do to not believe in hell or to downplay or erase hell and still be a Christian, it would just be unbelievable. You, you, it can't be done. Jesus took hell very serious. Did you catch how he described it? He emphasized the, uh, the eternity in hell, the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Does that seem temporary in any way? No. So there's actually two words. Whenever you're reading the word hell in the New Testament, you're reading one of two Greek words. So one Greek word that's translated as hell is Hades. So that's a familiar Greek word, right? Hades is like the Hebrew word Sheol. It refers to the realm of the dead. The other word, uh, the word that's used here that Jesus is using is Gehenna. That's a different Greek word that refers to a place south of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnon is actually what it is. That's Gehenna. And so this valley at the south of Jerusalem, it was known for one of the lowest points in all of Hebrew history. It was one of the ugliest, it, it was the low point. It was the low point. And so at this point in time, the kingdom of Israel had been broken up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Judea. 
And so just south of Jerusalem, what had happened is that the king at that time began to invite pagan god worship, false gods, the worship of false gods in Jerusalem. So in addition to having the temple here, there to, to worship Yahweh, they were also worshiping pagan false gods. One of those false gods was named Molech. And so there was Molech and there was Baal or Baal, depending on how you, you pronounce that. I don't know how it's pronounced. But Molech, you could, if you look up pictures of him, it's this big bronze statue. I think he's got kind of like a, a cow head and he has these arms that come out. And in this valley, they had that statue of Molech out there, and they would get it red hot with fire. It would be glowing. It would be so hot. You know, they'd burn stuff around it. And, and the, the reason they got it that hot is so they could offer sacrifices. And the preferred sacrifice to the false god, the Canaanite god Molech, were babies. It was human sacrifice, specifically babies. And so they would take a baby. And they would go lay it in the red-hot hands of Molech and watch it die. And that was the sacrifice to the false god, Molech. You talk about a low point in Hebrew history. This was an absolute embarrassment to them forever. And so finally, they got another king. Um, it was, so the kings that let it in, like King Ahaz, King Manasseh, but the King Josiah. You can read about this in 2 Kings. King Josiah comes in. Finally, someone comes to their senses, and Josiah gets rid of the false god worship. He's so embarrassed, so ashamed about this valley where they would do this, that he made it the trash dump. And so he, he leveled all of this, burned it to the ground, and that became the trash dump in that part of, the, in that part of Jerusalem. We we're so embarrassed by this, this is where we're going to take our trash and burn it. And so over time, especially during those, that intertestamental period between, that's the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, up to the time of Jesus, during that time, this is where people would throw their trash, there would always be fire burning at this dump because they would burn all of their fire and, the, and, and people would come by, throw more trash in there, keep the fire burning. It became a slang term to describe God's divine judgment on creation, end time divine judgment. Hell. And so Gehenna, by the time Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing his ministry, is a very known slang term to refer to hell. But it was, it was more specific. It was a slang term that specifically spoke of that eternal end time judgment. Like everyone will be resurrected in the end. We believe that everyone, good and evil, good and bad, believers or non-believers, everyone will be resurrected in the end. And then God's judgment, divine judgment, will come down, and people will go to hell, and people will go to heaven. Okay? So this is referring to that moment specifically. That's what this slang term referred to. That's what Jesus is using here to emphasize the seriousness of sin. And it's that reality of sin, right? The reality of sin that necessitates hell. It necessitates hell. You know that part of you that craves justice? Everybody in here thinks they crave justice a lot, you know, and, and, and you see various people displaying. That's, I, I feel like that's what social media has been used for more than anything else the past few years. Everybody wants everybody else to know how much they care about justice. We care about justice. We want justice. And, and people want justice for different reasons and different kinds of justice. But here's the point. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, you 
crave justice, and you want punishment to make things right. And the reason you're like that is because you're all made in the likeness of God. That's what he's like. You think you care about justice? You don't care about justice at all compared to God. He takes justice more serious than any of us in this room could ever dream of taking justice. It's an extreme to him. And he tells us from Genesis to Revelation how serious we're supposed to take sin and how serious we're supposed to take his justice because he is perfectly just. He craves it on a level we can't even begin to appreciate. We can only begin to appreciate it by reading his word. And so he, 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 craves, he craves this justice and he's going to carry it out through punishing sin. And so here's the thing, like, like our craving for justice and our implementation of justice, isn't it depressing? Right? There's a, there's a verse, in, I remember teaching in Ecclesiastes, there's this verse in there that says, even in the place of justice, there is no justice. It's like it, it's depressing. Like our best efforts at justice in this world are depressing because they're never as sat, justice is never, man-made justice is never as satisfying as what we think it it will be or should be, right? That's because we are sinful, we're fallen, and our best efforts at justice will fall short. But God's effort at justice is perfect because he is all-powerful, he is all-authoritative, and he will, he will carry out his justice perf perfectly. It's absolute. It's absolute. It's eternal. So, right, and that, that should give us peace. That should give us peace because when you think about like all the awful things that humans do in our effort to get justice, like some of the bad guys get punished, I guess. But man, and, and we only really care about justice when it's really bad or when it's somebody else, right? But like God's justice is so extreme, every sin will be punished. Not just the big ones, even the little ones. Every single sin is an injustice, and God will deal with every single sin. That, like, that just gives me peace, because it feels like right now too many people get away with doing bad things. It drives me crazy. That's why when you read the news, you get depressed, and it makes you frustrated, because we're constantly in a state of reading bad things happening and justice not happening. It just drives us nuts. We just can't quite get it. But every single sin will be punished by God because his justice is absolute. It's just, it's just a comfort. It gives me rest to know that it's all going to be made right. Because even, again, when we, when we carry out justice in our courts, did we make it right? We got justice. And, well, I guess we made it right as best as we can. But he's going to make it completely right. Right? His ultimate justice will be carried out. It's not going to be carried out by us going to be carried out by him. And so God, God's justice will be on all sin. And when I, when, I, when I really think about that, and if, you, if you're thinking about that right now, the sin in your life, here, here's what's going to happen. There's enough sin in my life right now that if God's justice is carried out on me, I don't have a chance. There is no escape. I, God could throw me in hell right now before your eyes, and he would be completely just in doing so because I've sinned. And if he is just on any level whatsoever, he will punish sin. 
And so he would be perfectly just. I couldn't complain. If I, if I got sent to hell, I couldn't complain about that. What leg would I have to stand on? Don't I want justice? He would be completely just in punishing me. So I know, as a believer, my only escape from this eternal punishment is Jesus. When I stand before God someday, Jesus either atoned for all of my sins and all of God's wrath was satisfied on Jesus on the cross or I have to satisfy the wrath of God and I have to take the penalty for my sins. That's the only two outcomes here. That's the only two outcomes. This is why we cling to the cross, why we cling to, to Jesus because all of God's wrath is poured out on him for our sins. He takes our sin, he takes our, our penalty, our punishment, we get his righteousness. And, and, and all of God's wrath is poured out on sin and punishes all sin because that's how serious God takes sin. So if that's how serious God takes sin, no wonder Jesus is talking the way he is. No wonder Jesus is teaching the way that he is. No wonder he's promoting the, the, the suffering that sometimes accompanies the removal of sin and how it's worth it. No wonder, because that's how, that's how serious God takes it. Did you catch that? Let me, let me read verse 49 and 50 to you again, because uh, the meaning, it, it's, it's kind of hard for us to grasp because we didn't grow up in the sacrificial system. Verse 49 says, for everyone will be salted with fire. You know, we read that and we're like, what? What's that mean? Okay, in the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice animals to God as an offering to God, there's a verse in the Old Testament that says it uh, really clearly. Every offering to God will be salted with, with salt. So there's, with every offering, there is also a salt offering. And so that salt, salt was used in the ancient world, like it is today, to salt our food. But it was also used as a preservative, as it is today, but more so back then. It was more thought of as a preservative. So this salt that would accompany an offering it happened with every single one, and it was a way of symbolically purifying this offering to God. It made it an acceptable offering to God. And so Jesus says, every one of us will be salted with fire. Every one of us will go through these moments that are painful as we put sin to death in our lives because it's part of what makes us acceptable to God as a living sacrifice, as an offering to God in our walk with Christ. In, in verse 50, it says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What Jesus is saying, obviously, this, this complements his teaching elsewhere in Scripture where he says, you know, we're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Remember that salt, that's what make, makes things good, right? That's what makes the meat good to eat. Put salt on it, smother it in salt. But that's also what preserves that food, right? It's a preservative. It preserves what's good about that. And so we need to be the salt of the earth in that sense. And so he says, if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? In other words, if you're, you're supposed to be the salt of the earth, if you're living out your life and you're not experience, experiencing this experience that he's talking about, you're not salty in that sense. So what good are you? If you're not putting sin to, to death in your own life, and you're not actively seeking towards the righteousness in your life and, the life and in the life of someone else next to you, then what good are you? This is what, this is what he's saying. That's how extreme he's taking it. 
I mean, that's what makes us at peace with others in our life. If we want to be at peace with those around us, stop sinning against them. If you want to be at peace with those around you, fight sin in your own life and make sure you don't cause your brother to stumble either. That's how we get peace with them. But our peace with God, our peace with God is made with that one offering from the high priest, the ultimate high priest, priest Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross. That's what his death and resurrection and ascension mean to us. They take our penalty. And they ins- that takes our penalty for sin, gives us his righteousness, and inspires us to go to extremes. If he died for this, if he died for this, if it's that important, we should take it serious too. And we should go extre- to an extreme in our life to put it to death. Let's pray to that end. Lord, I thank you for this teaching on sin. Every one of us here today, we need it. We need it. We need hit with this text hard. We think we're so righteous. We tend to think we are so much further along than what we actually are, Lord. And we need your your, your, your word to repent of that. We don't take sin serious enough, Lord. There's ways in which we just, we fall asleep to it. It sneaks up on us because we're not taking it serious. And before long, we're surrounded in sin. We're, we're saturated in it. It's, it's in every aspect of our life. We take it to work with us. We take it into our relationship with our spouse, our family. We take it to church with us. We infect others with it here. We sin against people. We sin against new people that show up. We make it hard for people with our sin, Lord, because we, we just, over time, we, we stop taking it as serious as we should. So we're so desperate for teaching like this, Lord, to just get our attention and allow us to repent. Lord, I pray for repentance. I pray that that conviction would not be wasted today. I just know that your word has convicted someone here today and they are thinking about something very specific in their life and they are teetering on the fence whether or not they're going to go to an extreme and cut it out. Lord, I pray that today this would push them over the edge. That they would finally take that step they need to take to cut the sin out of their life. Lord, because it's way better than the effects of sin and it's way better than hell. Lord, help us to keep that at the forefront of our mind, but also with the message of the gospel. That you died for our sins, that you atoned for our sins, and you have saved us from our sins. Help us to to walk with those truths that we can be changed today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.